Don Norman believes you should design for people the way they are, not for how you want them to be. He joins the Plutopia podcast this time as we discuss his journey from 1988's The Design of Everyday Things to his latest book, Design for a Better World. I wanted to do something that actually was much more important for the world, and the world is a mess, and I thought, what can I do to make a difference? And I thought about all the problems that exist, but I've also said, gee, you know, lots of good people have written about all these problems. I don't have anything to add. And I looked at for the solutions. Well, lots of good people have written about the solutions. I don't have anything to add. Most of them are technology solutions, however. But then I said, wait a minute, we have all these problems, we have all these solutions, but they aren't being done. Why aren't they being done? And I realized the real issue is human behavior and that maybe that's where I could say something. And so what I tried to do was, was re- put together the problems that I thought I could say something new on. Hey everybody, welcome to the latest Plutopia podcast. I'm John Lepkowski, uh, one of your co-hosts, along with Scoop Sweeney, my partner in crime, and our uh, contributor, our contributing editor, uh, Wendy Grossman. Uh, And our guest today is Don Norman. Don Norman has been a professor, an industry executive, consultant, keynote speaker, author, and I guess accidental designer, right? I heard you say that you got into design by accident. Yep. He's worked in electrical engineering, cognitive psychology, cognitive science, computer science, and design. And he's authored several books. And the one that we really want to focus on today is Design for a Better World. But he also wrote uh, the, the famous uh, Design of Everyday Things, Emotional Design, Living with Complexity, Design of Future Things, several other books. So welcome, Don. We're happy to have you with us. Thank you. The first book of yours that I read or the, was, was Design of Everyday Things. And what it seemed to me is that over, over the time since then, you know, you started with the things in everyday life that you encounter and that are frustrating. And then you sort of gone in increasingly large circles around that. You know, living with complexity is about systems and a system might include you know how it might be a banking system that includes how the queues move in a in a bank as well as you know how the actual machines work and how they keep records and this seems to me to have widened the circle as wide as you can possibly get which is pretty much the entire planet and everything on it and you know you, you start by saying that everything is artificial and you know i live in england where there is not an inch of ground that has not been plowed unplowed built on unbuilt on you know but yeah i like to think that there are parts of the parts of the world where you can still look out the window and see something that was not designed by a human um but you're looking out the window of therefore of an artificially yes. created building yes yes that is true so, I mean, is that a fair sort of, sort of, or, or do you feel that this book has kind of upended a lot of the work you've done? The book has upended, uh, and it's a different style because all the other books were about um, how to make things that are easier to understand, easier to use, better for society, et cetera. But um, I also uh, developed over the years what what is a system that's today called, it was developed by many, many other people, and we were all doing it together at the same time, 
uh, called Human-Centered Design. And uh, what I, this list book, well, you know, <laughs> I'm getting old. Uh, next month, I'll be 88 years old. And so, uh, don't know how many more books I have in me, but I thought- I literally that, had no idea. <laughs> yeah, it happens to all of us, at least the lucky ones of us who get there. Um, yeah. But um, I wanted to do something that actually was more, much more important for the world, and the world is a mess. And I thought, what can I do to make a difference? And I thought about all the problems that exist, but I've also said, gee, you know, lots of good people have written about all these problems. I don't have anything to add. And I looked at for the solutions. Well, lots of good people have written about the solutions. I don't have anything to add. Most of them are technology solutions, however. But then I said, wait a minute, we have all these problems, we have all these solutions, but they aren't being done. Why aren't they being done? And I realized the real issue is human behavior and that maybe that's where I could say something. And so what I tried to do was was re put together the problems that I thought I could say something new on. Now, in many ways, there's nothing new in the book. That's important because it isn't some crazy old person like me <laughs> saying crazy things. The things I'm, I'm talking about have been said by many, many people pointing out the problems, but so why don't we solve them? Well, I have a rule also when I write all of my books and when I teach my classes, I tell students it's easy to find criticism. It's easy to criticize and find problems, but it doesn't do any good if you don't provide a solution. And so in this book, I only talked about things where I found people who had what I thought were much better ways of doing things than what we're doing today. And therefore, there are the solutions. And so I addressed that as well. And um, so the book is quite different. It's really quite different and on purpose. You are right that in the what I like to do is I like to learn a new topic every year. And I every time I learn something new and exciting, I write a book about it. And so, um, but that kind of breadth was very important for me in being able to write this book, which also has even a greater breadth because now I'm introducing the history of colonization, the history of the world, if you will, and other issues. But um, my background, because I was an engineer and I was a, a psychologist and I am now a designer and I have been a business executive and I understand the issues that business has to face and how they make decisions, all that uh, came together in this book. You talk about human-centered design in your earlier books, but now you're talking about humanity-centered design. What, what's the difference? Well, what I now say is that human-centered design is wrong. And it's, and it's wrong in an interesting way. Um, I believe I have four basic principles in human-centered design, and I think those are all correct and all important. What's wrong is not what I said. What's wrong is what I did not say. And what I did not say was, well, we're designing this wonderful new phone or computer or automobile or kitchen appliance or whatever. We don't take into account what we're doing to the environment where we, we, we mine and destroy the environment to get the materials. And especially with some today's stuff, all these exotic materials we're building it out of. And we don't take into account how we 
destroy the air when we do the smelting to change, transform what we mine into the materials that we can use in manufacturing. And then the manufacturing where we put out pollution into the air, the land, the sea. And we make these things, especially in the consumer goods business, so it's really difficult to repair. And it's supposed to last only a few years. And then because it's difficult to take apart, you can't even reclaim the insides, which are valuable materials. And so in uh, countries in the world, there are piles of electronic junk burning, mountains. I've seen this in India. Um, and we have to take, we have to take account of that. And designers are responsible in many ways. Designers are both responsible and not responsible. We'll come back to that. Designers are responsible for the designs requiring these exotic materials and requiring these manufacturing methods and also agreeing to the company that says we don't, you know, we're going to bring out a new model every year and every year and every year. And so this one should last about well, two or three years. Something the automobile manufacturers learned a long time ago. Um, so, yeah. Well, I, I, one observation I have is that some years ago, um, Bruce Sterling, having become very aware of the problem of climate change, uh, he had written a book about people who hack tornadoes called Heavy Weather. And in his research, he stumbled into the science of climate change and realized that there was really a growing emergency. And this was back around 2000. And in trying to figure out what he could do most effectively to address that uh, in that he did have something of an audience, you know, there were people who paid attention to him. He decided that what he really should do is gather up designers and focus on designers. And he created something which he called the Viridian Design Movement. Uh, it had a series of design contests. But what he was trying to do was engage designers foremost and also like futurists and um all sorts of other people, but designers foremost. And, and he felt that designers were the ones who could, who could make a difference, who could make a change, who could, who could, uh, uh, point us in a little different direction into the future. And even though, of course, climate change is still a huge issue, but I think that that did have an effect. It did have an impact. I don't think so. So Bruce is a friend. I've known him for quite a long yeah. time. Um, but, uh, well, I'm going to back up to me for a moment, uh, because when I was trying to say, what can I do about the mess of the world, which is what Bruce did, he said, I decided that the most powerful tool I have is my books. And so I wrote this new book to address those issues actually specifically. And I think that's what where Bruce failed, that what he did is he tried to band together designers, but those are the wrong people because designers have no power. And I've, I've been lecturing about this and scolding designers on, all over the place that designers always are in the middle levels of things. Even in the university, they're never the best. They're never the highest ranked uh, department or school. And, um, and they're usually stuck in a school of art Art and design, well, come on, design has nothing to do with art. Uh, 
And uh, like someone said, you know, art came from design, not the other way around. And because artists do things for themselves, they're making, they're expressing things. It's very important in our world. I love art, but that's not what designers do. Designers build for other people. The problem, however, is that in part, maybe because of this art background, where arts despise, artists despise business and despise government and despise politics, the same true of many designers. So they're stuck in the middle of a company, or if they are in a university in the mid-levels of a university, or if they are have consultancy, well, they have to do whatever their clients tell them to do. So why aren't there any designers who are CEOs of major companies? None, as far as I know. And there are only a few designers at the C-suite, chief design officers, just a few of, of large, important companies. I think it's 15 or 20 people out of all the companies in the world. And that's because designers, I ask, I ask them and they say, well, you know, that's all political. Yeah, it is. And well, you have to learn about business and so on. Well, you know, engineers move up. How come they do it? Well, they will go off and get MDAs. Yeah. Why don't you? So designers, I say, look, one thing we teach in design is you have to understand the language of your customers and what they need. Who are your customers? Oh, the people who use our stuff. Yeah, it's true. But your most important customer is your boss. Well, maybe not your boss because your boss understands you. It's the boss of your boss. And so you have to speak the language that they speak, which is spreadsheets, profits, margins, cost. And uh, until they do that, there's going to be no difference. And so I'm, that's what I am aiming at in my talks, and that's what I'm aiming at. I said I have a big program on the future of design education, trying to change the way we educate designers, and I'm insisting uh, that designers get a much broader education so they know more about the world. And and that's where I think that um, Bruce went wrong, is that he tried to enlist designers. No, they're not ready to be enlisted. One place that... Uh... I've seen a fail, a failure, uh, perhaps not in designers, but in the implementation of design for the differently abled. My wife is an amputee. She gets around in a wheelchair. And when I go to a Central Texas hospital, an emergency room or a doctor's office, they have no way of her being able to get on to the examination table or the treatment table in the emergency room because it's just too expensive, apparently. And I've see, I see that constantly because I see the, the barriers that builders and uh, companies have put up that prevent a person from being able to enjoy the same access as another. Can a designer fix that, or is this all on the businesses? Well, it's, it's a system. So everything's a systems problem. Um, and no, designers by themselves cannot fix it because they don't have the power. Um, can they design things that might actually be beneficial and that might be less expensive and make it easier? Yes, designers have that kind of creativity and ability. But it doesn't do any good if the hospital isn't going to buy it, isn't going to ask for it, isn't going to install it. The physicians actually don't have much say either quite often. Um, and so you, you have to enlist all the relevant people and you have to demonstrate to the hospital that it's actually costing them more money. It's causing harm because 
in all the issues I've been talking about, let's take a look at that problem in medical medicine, or let's take a look at the problems of, uh, you know, climate change and what and some of the solutions, which are the circular economy, things that are renewable, re, uh, regenerative, no waste, et cetera, like, like nature. Um, you can't convince somebody to do it because it's good for the world. Because a company really has, if you're running a company, a large company, you have to keep it in business. And if it if it goes out of business, it doesn't do any good. And so they may like what you're doing. They may want to protect nature, but if it's going to cost too much money, it might put them out of business. It might make them less competitive. So you have to demonstrate ways that they can do this and save money, which means you have to understand um, how they work. And I keep trying to tell people, tell I, the designers, I say, yeah, you're designing things that are harming the all sorts of you know the economy and the environment, but you can't go to your bosses and tell them the problems. Don't give them the problems, give them the solutions. And the solutions have to be in business terms, uh, how they will eventually, maybe not the first year or two, save money. Well, the same is true in the, in the field of medicine. There are all sorts of problems. The one that you mentioned is one of them, but the incompatibility of all the medical devices and each one signaling its, its state by going beep, 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 and an alarm of going beep. Uh, that's crazy. It's stupid. There's no standards. And what happens is when there's a serious problem, everything is beeping. And so you can't even think. And if you're a physician, you're supposed to be thinking at that point. Uh, and so there are better ways of doing this. Uh, but you need to balance. But this is a political issue in many ways. So back to the sort of things that I wrote. Um, when I read the the technology solutions, well, Bill Gates has his book in which he talks about all of the issues and he looks at all of the proposals that have been made and he says, and he has very intelligent analysis, but he says, I'm not going to talk about politics. Well, come on, Bill, if you don't talk about politics, none of that will get done because a lot of this is legitimately a political problem. When you have different people with different views and uh, who, which contradict one another, you have to figure out a way of getting your way through them. And quite often, each of these different views is correct from the point of view of the, of the person. And so you have to figure out a solution. And that's where the same with the, I don't think anybody in the hospital system likes the fact that they have difficulty getting people onto the beds for examination and so on. They usually do it by enlisting about four people who would have synchronized and learned how to lift uh, but that also takes them away from other jobs they might be doing. And so, um, but they don't have, but no one has actually put together the system to show how things can be better and you will save money over time. And believe me, it's money that matters in business. And it's not, that's not necessarily bad. You have to learn how to do things efficiently. Isn't the problem that well, a lot of the Time. Businesses are told they've been fed. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Wendy. I was going to say, isn't it isn't it the problem case that a lot of the time the problem is the incentives are in the wrong place? You know, my last my last phone uh, is a Galaxy Note Four, and I had it from 2014 on until just a, last week. And one of the reasons I didn't replace it, well, apart from the fact that it had a very nice camera and it was a good enough phone for what I was doing. 
was that you can't get a phone with a replaceable battery anymore. And to me, that was like a deal breaker because that's the thing that means you can keep the phone for longer than a year or two. And um, I knew that there was this Dutch group called Fairphone. And it just so happened that the point where my phone started running out of storage and stopped working in some places coincided with the release of the Fairphone 5, which is in designed to be repairable and designed so that a user can take it apart and replace the battery and replace the camera module and all the rest of it. Um, but from the standpoint of Samsung, what, what good is a removable battery if it means I keep the phone for 10 years instead of two years? Yeah, so um, first of all, the Fairphone is a really good example of what can be done. And they really believe in the circular economy. They've done a good job, but it's really hard for a small company to come up and compete against the giants. Um, and the, uh, the issue is this, that many companies rely upon selling their products. That's what they do. And so it's useful that people, that the product doesn't last long. Um, but that's destroying the earth. And so what we have to do is, uh, is change the business model. And the, the only, the best business model I can think of to deal with this is to switch from making profits by selling new devices to making profits by offering services. And so basically... <laughs> You're going to you're going to do go back to the old days. Some of us on this call are old, like me, and we remember the old days when you didn't buy a telephone, but AT and T gave it to you, and you paid them a monthly fee, and they promised good service, and they promised that if the phone broke, they would repair it. If anything went wrong, they would repair it, and they took care of you. Uh, the problem is, though, they, they did this, they were a monopoly, therefore they had no incentive to make any improvements, to add new devices, to, well, to make the phone into what we have today, which is a very powerful communication system. But nonetheless, the service model is a good model. Others have adapted this. Um, airline engines for these big uh, commercial aviation planes, you don't, they don't, the, the uh, airlines don't buy the engines anymore. Uh, because they rent them, if you will. So companies like General Electric uh, will will sell you the engine by the hours. I guarantee a certain number of hours of flight. And what they will do is that the engines have such good sensors, they're continually sending information back to the factory so that instead of having to bring back the engine and you know maintain it at a fixed interval, and therefore it has to be a safe interval, uh, they only you only have to maintain it when the instruments say it's time to do so. And so everybody is saving money and it's a service model. And I've seen the same with tires. Uh, big trucking companies get the tires by the mile. And therefore, the, the tire company guarantees that those tires will last. You know, they'll keep they'll replace the tires when they need replacement. So we have to change the business model. And therefore, that's why designers either have to come in partnership with people who understand it or themselves. Some of them better learn how to introduce, how to say, hey, there's a different kind of business model that we could do that would actually bring us in more revenue or be better for our pit people. So it's it, the problem is not to, you can't just focus on one little thing. You can't just focus on the phone. It's, it's a big system. 
But isn't there a problem also with remove? You know, if you the way you're talking about it, it you know, every, you stop having ownership of things. And tell me you know, why that's on, a problem. On, uh, yeah, I don't think it's a problem on the business level, but on the individual level, I do wonder about a generation that rents their housing. So because they have to move fairly often, they don't own anything. Everything is a subscription. And then what happens one day when they retire and their income plummets and none of the things they think of as theirs are theirs anymore because they can't pay the subscriptions? So you're, you're a negative person. <laughs> but it's but it's but it seems to me a no-brainer that that's what's going to happen. No, it it is it's a no-brainer to say it. It isn't a no. It's not how the world works. Uh, first of all, again, we're talking about a very complex system, and if you try to remove one, try to look at one little component and say, oh, when somebody retires, their income goes down, and then what do they do? Uh, no, it, it doesn't. It can't work that way, and it's much more complex and. Um, you know, I'm not going to answer. I'm not going to give you the answer to your issue here because that's much more complex, and you we really have to go into it. And and I actually don't know the answer, but um, I'm not convinced it's harmful because I repeat, if you go back to the old days of the phone systems, people did retire then, and they didn't have an income, and that they, they still kept their phones. So well, things have to be priced appropriate to the. Uh, Usage. It, that's that's sort of only one piece of it. I think the other piece. Yes, of it that's is, what I'm trying to tell you. And don't don't bring up another problem or another problem or another problem, uh, because you have to look at the entire system, and we have to change the system. It's the system that needs change, and it's. Well, the, I agree with that. Uh, and it's the reward systems that we have in business, and we have in politics, and we have in academia. All of these are are wrong. Because people be people go, you know, they aim to to get the largest reward, which is not necessarily good for anything. It's not good for the company. It's not good for the universities. It's not good for the world. Yeah, we had a situation. We were talking about. We were interviewing somebody where we were talking about Second Life, uh, which you may be familiar with. It's a, a sort yep. of graphical online community, and there had been something in, in the book he had written about how Second Life was considered to be a failure, even though it was making money, but it wasn't increasing its profits. And when its profitability stopped growing, it was considered to be a failure, even though it was a sustainable business and has continued to be a sustainable business. And I think that's kind of crazy. I mean, to assume that a business must always grow and must always increase profits it just kind of doesn't make sense to me. Why can't we assume that a business is okay if it's merely sustainable and 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 able to continue as, as along? You know, actually, the, the all the words you just said, I have said those very same words over and over again. Uh, why can't businesses just exist to be comfortable and? Um, Actually, my business, the Nielsen Norman Group, is a good example. It's relatively small, and it's 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 about it's a really nice size, and there's no need to get to get larger. But um, the the problem is the uh, Wall Street. The problem is our economic system and how it works. And so once you start, once you're a public company, then people use 
their ownership in your company is a way of making money. And so if with the utilities, they, they can buy money in the utility and the utility simply pays them a standard amount of money every year. But if you really want to get rich, you want to buy a stock that's whose price will double or quadruple or whatever. And um, and that was that requires a company to be continually growing. And I think it's wrong, absolutely wrong. But we have to change the economic system. And that means we have to change a lot about it, a lot about how we do our system. And it's I don't I don't believe the problem is capitalism. I believe that the problem is the way capitalism has been implemented. And the way it actually is is done today. Um, well, yeah, I, I refer to that as hypercapitalism. But it's like there, in capitalism, there is an assumption that anything that is can potentially produce a value must produce a value, and that um, you know there is this at least the hyper side of it is that you're constantly trying to boost, boost, boost. You're trying to make more and more and more money. I don't believe and, that. Uh, no, that's, that's, yeah, that's me too. I think is wrong. And we have to figure out how to overcome that. It's true for a company that's just beginning. It does have to make enough money to reach a stable size. But once it reaches a stable size, why doesn't it stop? Um, yeah. The, the, the point is, these are problems, the, the technical term for the problems are wicked problems, uh, that they're difficult to define. There probably is no solution, uh, but you can still make things better. And they're wicked because there are so many different forces and so many different issues that come and converge and have an impact on, on the way things work. But I remain an optimist. And that's why Wendy and I get along so well. She's the pessimist and I'm the optimist. But actually, I would have said I was an optimist, too. You would have said. What would you say now? I would still say I was an optimist. <laughs> I, I don't I don't think there's anything inconsistent about being an optimist and yet looking for holes in an argument. Well, as long as you, you look. I for thought we were friends because we just every so often I call you up and interview you. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I don't think we've ever met in person. Yeah, we have. I'm sure we have. I actually, in in fact, I remember you weren't present for that, but I remember being recruited into one of your uh, user user studies at Nielsen Norman Group. I forget the name of the woman who who conducted it, but she used she used she used my voice for a long time afterwards because because I was swearing at the computer or whatever whatever task I'd been asked to do. I was complaining loudly, and she found that useful. Yep. I do not suffer quietly. By the way, I was going to mention uh, when we were talking about Bruce that another, because Bruce was a science fiction author, that's how he started out, um, hasn't written any science fiction the last bunch of years. Too bad. Just short stories. Yeah, but, I really, short I, stories a bit. but I really liked his novels. I thought they were extremely insightful. Uh, but the person who has actually used his science fiction stories to change policies is Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, and uh, who is who's done a really good job. And the you know the current big book is um, Ministry of the Future, which has actually now been read by many senior politicians. Uh, it's an interesting book because <laughs> because the only way he could make things work out in his story was to have his his heroes commit crimes. It had so. one of the most it had probably the most terrifying opening scene I've ever read. And the opening scene is yes. 
which actually didn't play a large role in the rest of the book. It's I no, no, it didn't, and I, and that that I found it hard to I found it hard to get through the rest of the book because of that. He that the story didn't sort of go in a logical. Well, he wanted you to know the harm that the climate change will cause. Um, I kept thinking about that opening scene here in Texas over the summer when our temperatures were escalating and it felt like a blast furnace when we stepped outside. And I wondered if the day would come when when we're in the same fix that those people were in. Yeah, it will come. Speaking of science fiction writers, um, go and, and science fiction writers and corporate um, incentives the charlie strauss has a, a piece somewhere on his blog he writes an extensive blog and somewhere on his blog he has a thing about we already have ais they're just old and slow we call them corporations and he was thinking of the nick bostrom thing of the ai that is programmed to make paper clips and destroys the entire planet and all, all oh, of the no, I, and I can't stand that that's that, the trolley problem and the paperclip problem are equally stupid i i agree although um but but charlie's point that corporations behave like old slow ais that are programmed to produce one thing i thought was quite apt and speaking of the trolley problem i don't know if you've ever seen the good place but there is an episode of an American sitcom that was on network network television about the trolley problem, and it was actually quite hilarious. So I recommend it to you. Um, I do like uh, Strauss's books. I haven't actually uh, gone to his website and his blogs. He he writes very intelligently about what's going on. You know, he he always his his view is slightly a kilter from everyone else's, which is what makes it so interesting. John, did you want to pick something up? Uh, sure. I, I, you've really kind of focused on like whole system thinking or thinking about the entire system when you, uh, when you design things, and that that kind of system thinking is important now in trying to meet the challenges that we have. And I'm just wondering how are there practical ways that ordinary people can can broaden their design thinking so that so that they're thinking more broadly about the problems that we have how can we leverage the creativity of ordinary people or or even of ordinary people who happen to be designers well long pause <laughs> um It's interesting. I like to say I, I very seldom ask questions I can't answer. Uh, and this is one of them. Um, they first of all. Yeah, how, another, there are several different components, right? First of all, the general principle is how do we give people a better education so they understand how to approach these issues? The second one, and that, that one I can talk about, but the other problem is what do you do about the people already who are existing? They've already, unfortunately, our educational system assumes you sort of go through education until you stop, and then you never learn anything from the rest of your life because you've now learned all you need to know, which is obviously false. Um, and But even so, our educational system is flawed because I blame the universities 
every all the top research universities want to hire the very best people in the world. Well, they can't all hire the very best. There aren't enough very best to go around by definition. So the way you solve that problem is you you <laughs> uh, and as knowledge increases, no one person can learn everything, and so we you we have specialties. And so the universities hire the best people in some very, very narrow specialty. And we have now this, the universities filled with specialists and the medical schools are, and the medical output of medical schools is scores of specialists. And we're just loaded with specialists uh, who know their field really, really well, but they don't know what their, their person next door to them is doing. So people in, in a single department in a university don't even understand the work that other people in their own department are doing. And uh, and the same in, it's in a business, you have to cut across the specialties. To do anything in the real world, you have to cut across the specialties. But even so, we still have a marketing department and an engineering department and the design department and the sales department. They have to work in concert and they seldom do. And so... I'm against STEM. Do I think that science and technology and engineering and, and uh, medicine are not, are not important? Of course, or it's not medicine, it's mathematics. Uh, yeah, of course it's important. But notice there's nothing about people in there. Notice, in fact, we're still maintaining, though, the separate, I'm going to become a scientist or an engineer or a technologist or a mathematician. No, we have to lump these together. And I recently discovered a new field to me anyway, called liberal education, liberal sciences, liberal studies, which I discovered it because a bunch of places in India are trying to develop their school around liberal studies, where instead of majoring in something, you get this very broad education where the people, the faculty who are experts in all these different fields together, get together and teach the, the courses and more and more of those courses are not lecture courses. Lectures are a horrible way to learn. Uh, lectures are good for motivating, but it's not a way to learn. You learn by working on problems and struggling with them and getting a result. And so they're they're actually trying to base this around problems. And um, I love that. And that's what we need more of in the educational system. And how do we do that with people who already are supposedly educated? Well, I think people should never end their education. They should be learning all the time. I'm still doing it. And uh, what they need to do is they need to, If you you don't have to go back to school. Why don't you make friends? If you're a designer, make friends with people in marketing and learn how they do things. Make Go out and watch the people in manufacturing and see what happens and why they complain they can't build what you've designed and so on. So it's... The, the world is, we need more groups and more collaborative work. And back to the university, we teach people to work by themselves. Well, if they don't work by themselves, how do we know what grades to give them? Well, grades are evil too, personally. But the only place you work all by yourself and not permitted to do other things is in school. And that's crazy because when you get work, you're supposed to work with other people. And if you don't know the answer, you're supposed to ask somebody else what the answer is. That's cheating in the university. No, that's collaboration in the real world. The whole idea of a liberal education is under attack in this country, especially in the state of Texas, where just the name, the word liberal is, you know, they 
equate that with communism or whatever the e evil of the month is. And we have people that are trying to, you know, get rid of books. I mean, what happened? The idea of a book burning is a popular idea in certain circles. How how do we address that and and create this uh, you know circular society? What's nice, and what I like about the, this book I'm doing and the the approaches that I'm taking is it used to be what font size do I use <laughs> or how do I make this legible or how do I make this understandable? And yeah, that's important actually, but it's not the critical problems facing the world. And Scoop, you just pointed out the kind of critical problems facing the world that we have to address. And uh, it's the questions like that that I would like to see discussions on, not by the, by the design community. Because look, I have great faith in the design community. They're very creative. They're the ones who actually figure out how to do all sorts of things that we need. And they don't, they're not just restricted to products or services, but also to ideas, to structures, to systems. They sh we need their thinking in doing this. If only they would wake up and realize that their talents Designers don't know anything. That's a virtue because design is a system, a system, a way of thinking and a way of approaching a problem and finding the core issues of the problem and addressing them. And we need to use those talents in addressing the kind of problems that you are talking about. Uh, they're not just in Texas. They're all over the world. Different, maybe different variants of the problems, but they're all over. Yeah, one thing this makes me think about is holacracy or sociocracy, um, which is uh, a model for a business where, and it co-ops adopt this model pretty often, but it, the idea of it is that you have roles defined in a company, but different people can like migrate into those roles. You don't necessarily have a single person who is always the CFO or CEO or whatever, but uh, different people can fill that role at different times and it can be passed around. And one of the, one of the great values of that is that everybody sort of kind of learns all the roles of the company and they kind of understand in more depth how it all fits together. Yeah. Um, I think in a company you have to still maintain stability. Uh, one of my colleagues, Ed Hutchins, uh, wrote, he was an anthropologist, is an anthropologist. Uh, he wrote extensively about some systems used in the Navy for doing navigation, for example, which had exactly those characteristics. That is, um, it was a group task, and you started off basically at doing some low-level part. Uh, and when you didn't quite do it right, other people around with you all doing it together. So people would just, you know, quietly take you aside and explain what you had to do and what was wrong. Sometimes not so quietly, but the point is they slowly with time, they would move up into the circle of, of responsibility, but that meant they had passed through all the levels and they understood everything and they knew what the issues were. And it was also a, mostly a manual system instead of a uh, highly technical automated system, which meant that it didn't fail. 
a person might be sick, but everybody, since people had worked through all of the activities and one person left, there was another person to take over, whether they were sick or transferred or whatever. And um, when equipment failed, the manual people could step right in. And that that was really, so that's kind of what you're talking about too in the system that you mentioned, which I hadn't heard of before, but it not only allows different points of view, but it also creates a, a very robust system because no single person is, is indispensable then. Others also know the roles and what has to be done. Yeah. yeah I think one of the challenges need- we face, oh, go ahead. No, I'm just going to say, but you need it in a really a collaborative group, which, and the problem with people is that, well, we're people and we sometimes hold grudges and we sometimes don't like one another. And um, yeah. Well, that's what I, I was just about to bring up is that's really politics right there. I mean, there's one way to think about politics. You talked about how some designers don't really want to get involved in politics and there's a politics that is this performative stuff that we see that's we're seeing a lot of it right now and everybody's really focused on it but then there's the politics of everyday life you know where people have to learn to live together and work together and get things done and i think part of the challenge is to figure out just that how people do work together and how they cooperate uh, cooperate and um I happen to have worked as part of a cooperative and, you know, we gave a lot of thought to how that model uh, differed from the traditional business model. And, and uh, uh, it was more, I would say, more human centered. It, it was better for the people who were involved. It certainly had its challenges, just like any truly democratic system has its challenges, especially in decision-making, and you mentioned stability earlier, but I wonder if you have any thoughts about how, at a, at a low level, how how people can work together and cooperate together and how that, you know, do we need to model the way that we, that we think as, in a, in a social sense, do we need to change the way that we think about being together? Um, well, actually, we have to think about it. I think that the, the, the problem, I think, is that throughout your education, we seldom are, 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 have any attention given on how we will work together as a collaborative, forceful team. By the way, the, the, notion, the title, The Politics of Everyday Life, that's a wonderful title for a book. Uh, it's not a book I will write. It's, but I, <laughs> I wish somebody would write it. Um, but there, you know, in this world, there's a, a lot of positive companies, a lot of small companies, a lot of NGOs, non-government organizations, a lot of foundations, but also a lot of uh, collaborative companies that are working together in a positive way much as you were talking about. So it's not every, I believe it has a lot to do with the way a company is managed, uh, whether or not uh, the people are supportive of one another and building towards a common goal, as opposed to competing one another and uh, maybe even undermining others because they assume that life in the company is a zero sum game. And if you, if you 
get something good, then I then it means I get something less or something. Uh, as opposed to it's it we're we're in a win-win situation where if somebody does something good, everybody gets rewarded, etc. There are companies that have managed this, and uh, mostly they're small because when a company gets large, they're really not easy to manage. They're un- because a company that's over a hundred people. 150 is the magic number, some people say. It's very difficult to, to manage. Um, and when you get to thousands or hundreds of thousands, or in some cases millions, how do you manage that? How do you make sure that everybody is, is, is trying to, you know, is working well with each other in a collaborative, positive sense? That's a really difficult, wicked problem. I have to say that... It has often seemed to me that the point at which companies go bad is the point when they go public, because it really seems to change the motivations behind everything they do. Well, I mean, I, I, I keep I hesitate to give my favorite example because it's everybody's favorite example. We we need other examples, but the example is Patagonia. Uh, oh, really? I was going to pick Google. <laughs> I would not pick Google as my model company. No, no, uh, not as a model company, but as a company that went bad when it when it went public, because that was when it started thinking about how to make money, and all of a sudden ads became well. Actually, it, uh, that's not quite true. Um, the it's related. Google really wanted to do good, and it had this model of you know do no harm, and um, but they had no way of knowing how to make money. And it wasn't being public that was a problem, but without money, they couldn't afford to pay their staff, their employees. And uh, so, yeah, the advertising thing came in, and that was the, the that was the secret to making a lot of money. Uh, and yeah, they got they went public in the middle of all of this. But I think it was because they didn't have any way; they weren't charging for the services, and people weren't going to pay for a search engine. So the ads were were the evil. Uh, I I just read a book. I can't remember now which one of the many I read, which said, you know, having a slogan like "Do no evil, uh, do no harm." It was uh, actually "Don't be evil." Uh, no, I don't think so. Was, no, it, it was. It was "Don't be evil." Oh, well, I don't think I. That was the book that I read. That may. Oh have, no, I meant that was Google's slogan. Oh, don't be evil. Whatever it is, that's the wrong way. What you need is a positive statement, which is actively, intentionally do good. So what did Patagonia do? Well, first of all, they are not a C Corp. They're a B Corp. And that changes the matter uh, things considerably. So B, I think of a B stands for betterment. Uh, they, they do not put their shareholders first. And the trouble is that um, the, the notion that the shareholders are the people that the company has to support is wrong, and I think is evil. And the B Corp is an attempt to overcome that. You put first, you put uh, the lives of your employees, you put the lives of your customers, you put the environment and where your your company is situated. That's what you're you uh, are aiming to improve. And um, and they've also now turned over the company to their employees. And their their products are mostly recycled. If, if you buy one of their goods, uh, you buy one of a sporting a jacket, and it gets ripped, you send it back to them. They'll repair it and return it to you. Uh, eventually, if it can't be repaired, 
that's okay. They'll reuse the components in their new clothes. And um, they they do make expensive uh, clothing, um, not not more expensive than their competition, however. And uh, they're a good example. Now, it's a medium-sized company, not a large company. And it's doing specialized equipment, which means, you know, it's mostly for outdoor people. And so it's also a specialized uh, target audience. But there are other companies that are using similar methods. And um, I think it, that, that that changes the economic model dramatically when you switch to a B Corp. And the B Corp is becoming more and more popular. It's still a, still a tiny percentage of companies, though. I wonder, when you, when you say that they gave the company to the employees, did they... Did they change the governance model for the company to allow employees to be involved in decision making, or is it still the same governance structure? Or do you know? I, I actually don't know, but I'll give you an example of how this works because I'm doing it right now. Um, I retired from the Nielsen Norman Group some years ago, and on in April first, twenty twenty three, the past April, Jacob Nielsen retired, and so. We sold the company, and we sold it to the employees. And there's a there's a it's called ESOP, an, an employee stock owning owned program. And so the way it's done is that uh, both Jacob and I own the, the shares of the company. He had half, and I had half. And the company now is going to buy them back from us. And as they do, that automatically changes the way the company is run, because. Uh, shareholders elect the board and the board uh, supervises the executives and, and helps make the decisions and it can overcome the decisions or, and can the, the board is, the, you know, appoints the chief executive officer and all the senior executives. So in the end, it means the shareholders, which are now the company employees uh, run the company. They do it indirectly through the structure is indirect. They do it because the shareholders control the board. But um, but in the Nielsen Norman group, what we've done is we have a new set of executives. Uh, they're working really well. And these executives are also empowering the people beneath them. Now, we're a very small company. It's like 25, 30 people. So that's easier. But the principle, I think, is the same principle because ESOP is a very standard process that many companies go through. I'm not sure whether Patagonia used the ESOP process or not. It's amazingly complex because if it's a non if it's if it's a non public company, it's technically called a retirement system, and so it's it's uh, you have to deal with the IRS and I forget what other government agency, both of them who have their own requirements on this, uh, but. It's the employees, the, the employees really like it because they, it gives them an automatic say. Yeah, there's a, so in the co-op world, you, you know, the goal is to have a democratic work workplace. And, you know, speaking of design, how to design a system for a democratic workplace is pretty challenging because, um, uh, you know, democracies are famously difficult and you end up having something more like like in the u.s we have a republic uh where we have representatives you have some representative form to make it work but 
if you're in a co-op where you really want everyone to be able to have a stake in the decisions that are being made, it's a great idea, but it, it, it's hard to scale. So I think probably speaking of design, one place where we need some design thinking is how to design a system for uh, a more participatory governance of a company that doesn't like melt down because, you know, it becomes chaotic as democracies yeah, sometimes that, will. A lot of people do work in that in various fields, fields of management. Uh, political scientists have thought a lot about how you can structure a government for the, for, for the same issues because, you know, as Winston Churchill said, the, <laughs> democracy is the world's worst way of running a, a government except for all of the others. Uh, there's no known way that works with these large systems. And I'm, I'm championing the, what I call humanity-centered design, where you don't go into a community and, and do a new sewer system or a public health system or something and give it to them and then wonder why they don't like it. But it has to come from them. But I, it sounds really nice in principle, but actually anybody who's worked trying to do this you have a meeting of all the people and everybody has a different opinion. Everybody has a different voice and everybody, et cetera. And eventually they reach some agreement and you go off and you try to do something and you come back and to give, you know, progress report. And guess what? It's a different group of people. <laughs> and, and the, the fight starts all over again. And uh, it's, it's chaos. Yeah. The city of Boston where I live has experienced that before they, I think it was called Imagine Austin, and they were they were basically trying to get citizen input into into planning and planning decisions, and uh, it was very complicated. And you know, it, if you please some people, you upset others. It's a very hard thing to do. And I I, I think it's a wicked problem myself. I think it's 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 difficult to resolve the issues of participatory democracy. On the other hand, as in the Churchill sense of things, what else are you going to do, you know? Yeah. I don't want some autocrat making all the decisions for everybody either, you know? Well, it works well when it's a good autocrat. <laughs> but you, how do you guarantee a good autocrat? And eventually that good autocrat dies or something goes away, and then what? And we have a particularly bad crop of autocrats lately. <laughs> yeah, well, Austin used to be one of my favorite towns, except for the weather. Um, but it isn't the same Austin that I knew way back in the 1980s. Yeah, 1980s. Yeah, yeah, it's changed a lot. It's changed a lot. It's place, um, what, it's an entirely place, different city. But what place is the same as it was in the 1980s? Probably no place. Yeah, exactly. And, but and I used if, to, when people used find, to ask me, people used and to if you ask could me find what, such a, And if you could find such a place, would you want to live there? They wouldn't even you, have the internet. Well, there is a place. It's called, no, they would. There, uh, there's a place that's, that's kind of like that. It's called Singapore. Uh, and mm -hmm. it's run by autocrats and by professionals because the, the uh, staff, they're highly educated and they're the, the government that's run by people who have trained well and they get their job because they're good at it, not because they're somebody's brother or 
or a friend. And, uh, but not everybody likes to live in Singapore because it's pretty strict about how you have to live in order to make it work for everybody. And, um, but the other thing about Singapore is, first of all, is relatively wealthy. That helps. And second of all, it's a very, it's a city. The country is, is a city and it's, uh, it's basically an island. And so that's how they manage it. You know, we're getting a, a little low on time here, but I just kind of wonder about, I mean, what do you think about the, there's an extent to which people in power in the U.S. now, uh, some of the people in power in the U.S. now are dismissive of experts and they don't value expertise. In fact, they're suspicious of it. And they, um, uh, at the worst, worst cases that they deplore it uh how do we how can we cultivate a sense that expertise really is valuable that it's not just some like an expert is not just some elite that's trying to force something down your throat but it's it's actually someone who has valuable knowledge and and someone that you should respect and and listen to and follow and and that you should um that you should hope will help you solve the problems before you well um i i agree with what you said but let me point out one of one of the books that has really influenced me very strongly um is called the tyranny of experts and uh and the point is that expert knowledge is not enough that um the point is that in foreign aid, which is what the book is about, um, the the governments or the foreign aid, you know, groups of governments or non or foundations would send in experts to study a problem, and they would spend a, a couple of years and they would come out with big reports and they would say, "We can solve your education or your public health problem. It will take ten years." Uh, and it costs, you know, $20 billion, but here's a wonderful solution. And by the way, in the world of raising money, it's easier to get 10 or $20 billion than it is to get 100000 because uh, it's a big, big, you know, wonderful enterprise and everybody's excited by it. But the problem is that uh, experts understand the problem. Their solution is good. The problem is they don't understand the people. They don't know the particulars of the group. And so they're imposing their own desires upon a different group and it never works. And it, and it runs into the kind of political problems we've just been discussing. And it goes always over, over its budget and over its time schedule. And most of the time they give up before they finish. And um, it's not against expertise, it's against relying solely on the experts. What happened with COVID was a really good example is uh, and this is what soured a lot of people on experts in the meta in the public health area, uh, because the experts did their best when the disease first was discovered. We assumed it was more like other contagious diseases of similar sorts, and so we gave all sorts of advice. And then, as we learned more about COVID, we realized that was some of the advice was wrong. So we changed. We and I was in, involved a little bit because I was working with public health people and infectious disease people uh, to change the advice that we're given to the world. And that's how science works. Science is not a body of facts. Science is a method of 
of increasing your knowledge. And when you learn something new, you're supposed to change your mind. And uh, but that really that didn't people don't understand that. And they thought these are charlatans. Why do they always tell us one thing? And then six months later, it's just the opposite. Well, we learn things. Part of it is like instantaneous communication. We were we were spreading the word very quickly to people uh, before ruminating, you know, and, and we were giving well, we, people advice before it was laid back. Yeah, but we had exactly, to, exactly. Yeah. yeah, the scientists would love love to have spent six months thinking about it and studying it, but no, people were dying. They had to have answers immediately, and we, it didn't help that our our top level politician was um, wasn't helpful, shall I say? A screwball. Yeah. Okay. Um, but um, but but here's the point. My personal feeling is you should not have followed the experts. Because uh, um, the expert was an expert in public health. Remember the specializations. We also had experts in uh, the in economic impact of the recommendations being made by the public health official who would say, no, 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 this will be very harmful. And we had other experts in other areas uh, about mental health, for example. No, this will be harmful. So these are all, all these conflicting opinions were correct seen from the point of view of that specialist. And this is a legitimate political issue where the, where the goal of, of the good politicians the, uh, who are actually out to do good for the world uh, is to try to figure out, well, yes, we have to balance the the uh, health of people with their economics because if they don't have, if they don't have jobs, any, they're not working anymore, how do they live? And uh, for that matter, the mental health, the people you can't, you're supposed to be isolated, so you're no longer talking to people. Well, what about young kids where that's a very critical period of their experience as they grow up? And so trying to balance that is very difficult, but we made no attempt. What happened though is oftentimes one community would go off in, in one direction and another community in the other direction. Uh, there was very few communities that tried to balance these. And balancing is very, very difficult because as you, it's the comment you made earlier, when you try to help the, as many people as possible, you will probably harm a group of people as well. I hate to say it, but we're, we're really out of time. Wendy, did you have something else you were going to say? No, I was just going to say that I thought it was a pity in the COVID example, the way people became very tribal very quickly about their set of beliefs and I think it made it hard for scientists to to walk back some of the things they'd said because it felt like they were agreeing with the wrong tribe. But people are tribal. We're very good in relatively small groups. Yeah. So thanks so much, Don, for joining us. And uh, I feel like this feels like a cliffhanger. Maybe you should come back sometime if we can talk about it some more. You can stay in touch with Plutopia at Plutopia.io. On Facebook, look for at Plutopia News. On Twitter, it's at Plutopia. This is the Plutopia News Network, 20 minutes into the future.